Amen. Thank you, and you can be seated. Turn in your Bible together with me to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. We'll look at the entire chapter this morning as we're moving through the book of Exodus. We'll take this through week by week um, through chapter 20. That's where we're going to go. There will be a break during the month of August. Our elders will be preaching a series uh, each Sunday a different elder will bring a message that we've uh, put together as a study for the church. That will take place. I want to mention a couple of more things before we get dive into uh, Exodus chapter 8. Um, last Sunday, someone came to us following the service, had confessed Christ, desired baptism. And typically, uh, amen, we're thrilled about that. Um, typically, this is what happens at our church. You know, all church churches do this a little bit differently. But how we handle something like this is when people begin to approach the elder board, Pastor Alex and I, and, and they have made some form of a spiritual movement. Um, obviously, salvation being the top of those priorities, we then present it to the church, and over a season, uh, four, five, six weeks, whatever that might be, for those of you that are feeling compelled to join, uh, for those of you that need Jesus, for those of you that just want help in your faith, ultimately we run this through um, where we have an actual class, a membership class, which is designed uh, to basically tell uh, the people that go to the class about our church, what we believe, um, coupled with those things that pertain to baptism, those any things that could be something significant in your mind, uh, like a doctrinal or theological question, they could be something very sim simplistic, like where are all the bathrooms? Um, those questions are answered there, and we certainly uh, try to make ourselves available to all who uh, desire membership, uh, namely those come to Pastor Alex and myself. So... Um, Again, if you've professed Christ, and uh, we want to hear about it, we want to know about it, and for those of you that have professed Christ and have yet to follow Christ in believer's baptism, we certainly um, want to see you get baptized. And so, would you please consider those things as, again, as we move through this summer series. Okay, Exodus chapter 8 is a lengthy passage, which I'm going to read. There we go. There we go. I got carried away. Flocks. Home Bible studies. Okay. Uh, one last announcement. Look at brothers appointing me out. In the... Sign-ups. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Flocks are home Bible study groups. And um, we begin those in September. We run them through Memorial Day. And we've gone through a unique time period um, where we want all of you that want to be, uh, become a part of a home Bible study group for you to sign up, okay? And that sign-up sheet is in the foyer, and uh, 
in the foyer, it will basically uh, ask you a few questions, and then you can sign up accordingly. Now, we have done flocks for now 20-plus years. We need you to sign up so that we can make sure that we put the uh, groups together. If, if you do not sign up, you won't be assigned to a group. And, of course, that sign-up sheet, it is July. And uh, let's not wait till the last week in August to sign up. Um, it'll help us because we have to put together homes, studies, and whatnot, and we certainly want and enjoy that. Flocks is a great ministry. Uh, those are home Bible studies that meet twice a month for community, for um, fellowship, one another concepts. They're just a beautiful thing. Please uh, sign up for that. Um, we look forward to that, and they'll begin again with new groups coming this fall. All right, Exodus chapter 8. This, again, as I just mentioned, is a long chapter. And the most and the singular infallible thing that will happen this morning will be this chapter itself. Okay, I might even mess up some of the reading portion. <laughs> I might get tongue-tied with this. Having said that, though, do not check out. Read the text along with me as we dive into this text today in Exodus chapter 8. Okay, let's begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and in your ovens and in your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers and over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs may be cut off from you in your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, be as it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went up from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according uh, to the word of Moses." The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. 
and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not, so there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Moses' heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people into your houses and into the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on the day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies uh, shall be there, that they may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all of the land of Egypt, and the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you and will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only not, let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and he removed the swarm of flies from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for 
the liturgy. We thank you, Lord, for the church of Christ Community Church. Thank you for these men and women and all of their families that represent, Lord God, your people, a people that you have called out, a called out family that extends across the globe. So we ask this morning for, for our sake, God, that you'll teach us your truth according to Exodus chapter 8. And Lord, once again, if someone does sit in this room that doesn't know Jesus, may they become convicted about their sin and convinced of the truth of your Son, the Lord Jesus, and believe in him this morning. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we look at Exodus chapter 8 this morning, once again, another aspect of who Yahweh is comes to the forefront for us. God is a judge. God will pour out his judgment against all evil. And this is what we're really following as we move through the plagues that are found here. God is a judge who will write injustice, even if that injustice is not made right until the final day. People look at the Old Testament and they think of God as a judge and they don't think he judges in the New Testament. You'll get silliness that, that portrays the Trinity like you got an angry old man and his hipster young son. And he's telling his old man kind of to cool out. But please listen to these words in Acts chapter 17 verse 31. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And the individual that will judge that is our Savior, Christ, our Lord. Yahweh here is pouring out his judgment against evil. And let's not forget this. Pharaoh is the one who has enslaved God's people. He's the one that brought them into bondage to which they were in bondage for over 400 years. It is Pharaoh that had enacted a holocaust against the Hebrew sons to have them thrown into the Nile and to be killed. In each of these settings, and as we move through each of the plagues, God gives time for Pharaoh to repent. He allows him opportunity. So as we look at Exodus chapter 8 this morning, and I really think if you look at the plagues in their entirety as you move through each, there's, there's four reoccurring themes. And we're going to use those four reoccurring themes to look at Exodus chapter 8. The first one being the obvious one, let my people go. Okay? Let my people go is the consistent refrain as Moses goes to Pharaoh and he approaches him. Secondly, as we're beginning to know this more, we're, we want to know who Yahweh is because he's defining himself to his people and through the promises that he makes to them. 
So let my people go and know Yahweh. The third thing that is clear is Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart, once again, is dealt with significantly in in Exodus chapter 8. And then the last thing is the signs and the wonders, the various plagues. You know, what are their purposes and why are they there? So, let my people go, knowing Yahweh, Pharaoh's own heart, and these signs and wonders are how we're going to transition now into Exodus chapter 8. Now, we know this, and you hear this every week as we're moving through each of these chapters, that Moses, and sometimes along with Aaron, will go, they'll approach Pharaoh to let my people go. To let my people go. Okay, flip back to chapter 4 of Exodus. And we kind of look behind what's the purpose of this. Beyond the obvious that it was sin that Pharaoh and Egypt had enslaved them. There are, there are things going on as God is shaping his own people. Why is the purpose for this call and this demand on Moses' part to let Yahweh's people go to Pharaoh? Okay? And this begins as we go back to um, Exodus chapter 4. When you read the end of this chapter... When Moses and Aaron presents what, what Yahweh had told um, Moses out of the burning bush, they then meet with the elders of the people of Israel. Verse 29 says, And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people Notice this with me. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that they had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Here's the purpose for the calling out of God's people. So that God's people would believe on Yahweh and then from their belief they would worship Yahweh And then, as Moses approaches Pharaoh, they are called to serve Yahweh. This message, when believed, is consistent to faith of our day. People who believe on Christ, then worship Christ, then serve Christ. God is faithful, as you recall back, To bring them up. It was to bring them up and out of bondage from where they were for over 400 years. It was to deliver them. It was to redeem them. It was He would solely be their God and commune with them. And then He was going to give them a land. God is faithful to the promise that He made to His people And in Exodus chapter 4 here, Moses and Aaron go to God's people with God's promises and the result of God's word, His promised word being preached, is that the people believed, the people worship, and then ultimately the people serve. And this is a consistent response for all of God's people in all 
of his generations of the world. This is how God's people responds. God's people are enslaved, they're in bondage. God promises deliverance. Moses, of course, is the mediator as we've seen this the last few weeks together. And God is making movement towards his people to free them from Pharaoh and their slavery to the Egyptians. Now, because that's true, that God's people respond to the, the gospel message the same way in terms of they believe the gospel, as a result of believing the gospel, they, they worship Yahweh, obviously Christ, and then they serve Christ. This is the response of God's people. The church hears the outward call of the gospel that goes out each Sunday here from the pulpit and, and in through the Bible classes. Um, and yet in our generation, um, something very odd has happened in an attack on the gospel itself. Um, and so oftentimes you'll hear today, even in Protestant churches where people are struggling to hear, where is the gospel? Where is the, where is the gospel that's faithful to what God has called us to preach? You hear what really is being offered is closer to um, God will save you, but he's looking to save you to give you some form of freedom for yourself. That you could be independent to yourself. And it's really a gospel of pursue your own self-interest. When, for God's people, when they believed in Yahweh, they worshipped, they were drawn into the community. It wasn't an individualistic thing. And as a result of that, they served Yahweh in that community. And I would say um, that what's happened in the American gospel has been a phenomenon probably that started with Charles Fenney, but certainly has led us to this point where we're at now, where in a lot of churches, what's being offered is really a kind of American gospel. It's a... It's a salvation without a cross. It is a, a call. You can, you can have your freedom. And, and we're all kind of living our own independent islands. And it's not biblically accurate. Because the church who believe the gospel, that outward call of the gospel, has always consistently responded in repentance and belief. Belief results or looks like faith in Jesus, which worships Christ and then serves Christ. So this is the first purpose as we look at why uh, uh, Moses is to go to Pharaoh and to say, let my people go. Secondly, let's look at this. What does this reveal to us, Exodus chapter 8, about Yahweh? Well, Yahweh, we know, um, has offered the promise the covenant of hope from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That is the first gospel promise that the Messiah himself would come, the seed of the woman, and crush the seed of the serpent. 
this creator God that is discussed to great detail in the book of Genesis is now being defined more clearly who this God is. And in Exodus chapter 8, what's pretty uh, glaring is that Yahweh is a judge. So not only is Yahweh creator, not only is he holy, not only is Yahweh faithful, that's what Moses and Aaron preached to the elders of Israel and to Israel itself, God, God, that is Yahweh, is faithful to keep his promise, but that Yahweh is intimate. He knows the woes. He understands the pain and the suffering that his people are experiencing. And that Yahweh will save. He will bring deliverance. He will deliver them from the bondage that they're held in to be freed to worship Yahweh. He lets them know in an assuring way and in an intimate way that He is going to be their God and that He will dwell with them. And that is really this, this wonderful Exodus story, which is really the climax. It's really the main theme of the Old Testament. And it's what God's people have always looked forward to is dwelling with Yahweh and being able to do it in Shalom. Yahweh has adopted them. Yahweh will be their God in an intimate way. And ultimately, we know He's going to give them a land which was fulfilled in Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 45. But specifically here, what we want to draw out of this text about Yahweh is that Yahweh is a conquering king. He is a king who judges He is a judge who is judging Pharaoh and he's judging the Egyptians and Pharaoh has no power to stop him. Look at verse 19 of chapter 8. As we go through the third plague and the second plague of this chapter under the gnats and, you know, I mean, it doesn't take much of an interpretation as you, as you read this chapter, you begin to queeze if you don't like, you know, frogs everywhere and, and, and gnats and flies. I've never been a big picnic guy because I like to eat indoors. I don't want my flies on my food. Can you imagine frogs and flies and gnats just everywhere? God makes a distinction, of course, eventually that His people are protected in Goshen as, as that's where they dwelt. But I think this is pretty significant here. Pharaoh, once again, is, is frustrated. He has his magicians. And as a result of this plague with the gnats, look at the response. The, the magicians are unable to produce the gnats. I'm not quite sure I understand why they would have wanted to produce more gnats. But nonetheless... Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, verse 19, look at this with me, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. His magicians, who are not the followers of Yahweh, identified to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Yahweh is judging you. And he's judging our people. 
Through this, we know eventually that God's people will plunder, will plunder Egypt. Look at chapter 12 of Exodus. When the final plague takes place and the execution of the firstborn, where Pharaoh refuses to let them go, look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They couldn't get them out there quick enough. For they said, we shall all be dead. For so the people took their dough before it was leavened and their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks and on their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they, uh, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered Egypt. Yahweh is a judge who is a conquering king. God's people are receiving the spoils and the plunder as he delivers victory for them over Pharaoh and Egypt. Now let's look to the text that Zach read earlier this morning. Look with me back to Luke chapter 11. That phrase, the, the finger of God, is only used four times in the Bible. Three times it's mentioned in the Old Testament and one time in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus uses it to me as a clear softball to interpret what was taking place in Exodus chapter 8. Let's look again to Exodus, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11, but let's just move to verse 20. Okay, let me set this up a little bit. Jesus had cast out demons, and in casting out demons, his enemies were attacking him, saying, well, you cast out demons by Beelzebub. You cast out demons by Satan himself. But this is a very significant response that Jesus has. Look at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, in other words, Jesus says, I'm bringing the judgment of God on the demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And of course, we know it has been inaugurated through the ministry of Christ. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. The strong man there in verse 21 is being referred to as Satan himself. Until the kingdom have come, until the fulfillment of Christ's work would be complete, the gospel was somewhat held back. But when Jesus accomplishes the fulfillment of salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection. The kingdom has come, and Satan no longer has a stranglehold of darkness on the world. Look at verse 22. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, 
This, of course, is the Son of God, Jesus. He takes away his armor, Satan, in which he trusted, and he divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Just as Yahweh conquered the house of Pharaoh, so Christ has plundered the house and the kingdom of Satan, binding the strong man that he cannot impede the power of the gospel and the power of God to save. Je Jesus is judging Satan. He brings forward here and he's pointing back to a new and a greater exodus. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 8. We'll look at the third thing. The third thing is, is Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh responds here. In verse 8, the text tells us he pleads. In verse 15, he hardens his heart again. In verse 19, as we just noted together, the magicians tell him he's under the judgment of Yahweh. And as a result, he hardens his heart to that message. He tries a compromise in verses 25 through 28. And once again, the chapter ends with Pharaoh hardening his heart. Pharaoh is at liberty to respond. Pharaoh was responsible for his actions. Pharaoh, according to Acts chapter 17... Verse 31, will face Christ in the judgment, fully responsible for what he did in his activity to God's people. Yahweh here, with each plague, is offering Pharaoh an opportunity. An opportunity to repent, and still Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Watch this. Look at chapter 10 of Exodus. Look at chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. Pharaoh admits he's a sinner. Hmm. Probably all of us know someone who has believed on a type of gospel that has disconnected itself from the worship of Christ with God's people and the service of Christ through the ministry of, of a local church. Some would probably say, as you've had a friend, it could be in your family, it can be very frustrating even at times to kind of point out to someone who seemingly to us does not have a genuine view of, of, of real belief. They've believed on something, but it really isn't the gospel that God uses in the Scripture. It's, it's not a gospel that once one believes, it leads them to worship Christ. 
and it leads them to serve Christ. Now, don't, don't get that wrong, because I think that encompasses justification and sanctification. The beginning of life for people in the church begins by faith and faith alone. But genuine faith is never alone. All of us will stumble along our way in our following and our faith of Jesus. But there is a direction. Now think about this. What actually saves? What does it mean to repent and to believe the gospel? Well, let's deal first of all with repentance. At least at the beginning place, right? When you, when you get convicted prior to, you know, prior to be, being a Christian, okay, what does repentance look like? Repentance looks like that acknowledgement. That acknowledgement that you are a sinner and that, that you have a need because you know that, that you can't save yourself. And there's a willingness to admit that. And in that acknowledgement, God, in His gift of faith, begins to turn you to apprehend His mercy, which is only found in Christ alone. So repentance, in its initial factor, when you come to faith in God and in Christ Himself, is an acknowledgement of your own sin and that there's a major problem. And if you stay in this condition, you are doomed to a sinner's hell. You are condemned before God. You will face that Christ who will judge you according to His righteousness. Repentance is an acknowledgement of your own sin, which is turning you, because it's the gift of God, to Jesus Belief, then, encompasses three things. It encompasses knowledge, it encompasses assent, and it encompasses trust. And all are important, right? Because nobody's saved by osmosis. Nobody's saved through some form of esoteric religion or some vagary. No, we are saved by the components of the gospel. That takes a knowledge, and that knowledge basically revolves around three things. God is holy, you are sinful, and Christ is the Savior. And as Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7 will say, God will by no means clear the guilty. Our God is a God who's a judge. He's a judge. And that is a very difficult message in the American gospel because the American gospel says that God is only love and he wants to give you everything you want. Our God is a God who judges. He judges. You must come to that knowledge that you are a sinner and that God is holy, and that Christ alone is the one that can save. Christ and Christ alone. That knowledge of those components, the components again being God is holy, that Christ is the Savior, and that you are sinful, 
You must, in your mind, believe those things to be true. You must assent in your mind, it is a head knowledge or intellectual assent, that those things are true. But there are a lot of people who grew up in Christianity that would hold to those things that would still fall short of saving faith. Because saving faith is a transfer of trust. Pharaoh admitted that he was a sinner. Now, he admitted it because he had ulterior motives. But he may have admitted it in general. Yeah, I sin. People may admit that they're sinners. But conviction of sin doesn't necessarily mean you're a Christian. That is not enough. Head knowledge is not enough. Intellectual assent is not enough. You must transfer your trust in repentant faith to trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the salvation of your life. And what's clear about this is Pharaoh wants no part of Yahweh. He wants away from Yahweh. I think this is very helpful in our day and age. In your faith, is Jesus the center of your gospel? Because if you want some fairy tale view of heaven without Christ, you're not believing in the, in the God of the Bible. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the one who rescues us. Jesus is the one who delivers us. Jesus is the one who redeems us. Jesus is the one who will be our God. Revelation chapter 21. We will live face to face in a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation. Pharaoh admitted his sin. But he certainly wasn't a follower of Yahweh. Genuine belief possesses knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. And when God becomes alive in you, you feel compelled to worship Christ because Christ is dwelling within you. You want to serve Christ. These are the results of those who believe in Jesus. That's the manifest evidence that Scripture provides us. Let's move to this last thing. Signs and wonders. In Exodus chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 8, the second through the fourth plague is given here. All right? And in Christian tradition, they've, they've been called plagues. I think the Jewish tradition is more accurate. The Jewish tradition thought of the plagues as strikes. That the conquering King Yahweh is judging Pharaoh and judging Pharaoh's people who follow uh, Pharaoh with strikes. Philip Riken, the president of Wheaton College and a Presbyterian pastor, says this to the plagues. God was claiming authority of the very soil of Egypt. God's strategy for gaining glory over the gods of Egypt 
and was to defeat them one at a time. God demonstrating his power over the creatures that Egypt worshipped. You see, the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the one that controlled and sustained the world through those deities. So the Egyptian people themselves worshipped Pharaoh as Pharaoh would utilize these deities for various reasons. Thus, when you're looking at the plagues or the strikes, if you were, God is judging Pharaoh and Egypt and the Egyptian gods. In this text, and let me get through this quick. There are frogs, gnats, and flies. If this isn't the fulfillment of Romans chapter 1, really, really nothing is. There was a god of the frogs who was known as Heget. She had a frog head with a woman's body, and archaeological findings in Egypt show this. <laughs> um, and, and, and that frog-headed Heget, this god that they worshipped, they saw as uh, was the god of fertility that God, Heget, allowed great births to take place in Egypt. The gnats represent the god of Set. That was his name, the god of Set, which was the god of the desert. The third one, the flies, were known as the god called Kefir. This is another a part of the archaeological findings in Egypt. There was a bug, a flying bug called the Sacrobs. Now get this, the Egyptians believed that the Sacrobs would bring and give one resurrection. So these people who worship this way, the, the, the creature over the creator, had these gods that they believed in that would bring fertility and a god that would bring resurrection. It really is a picture for us that apart from the grace of God, we are all capable of worshiping Anything. Anything. Romans chapter 1 is a picture of this where God just gives them over and leaves them to themselves. What's happening here are the signs and wonders are almost pointing in my mind like a decreation. God originally made order out of chaos in judgment now to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He's bringing chaos to his order. That leads us to this. What signs should we be looking for that point us to Jesus? A wooden cross. A three days journey. And an empty tomb. At the cross, the scriptures tell us in the New Testament that Christ judged Satan. His fate is sealed. By our Lord's death, he conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. And your only chance to stand against, or, or as you meet God in the day of judgment, is to stand under Christ's care. The empty tomb references to us a delivered victory that God promised all the way back to Genesis 
proving that Christ's death had vanquished death forever for God's people. The empty tomb is a picture that God rewards and gives life to those who believe on Christ. This morning, trust in Christ. Trust in Christ to save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, through it, you define yourself to us. And help us, Lord, to embrace that you are a God who judges. May we not be carried along by the idols of our own heart, but that each of us will stand before you on the day of judgment. And Lord Jesus, you will judge according to righteousness. And we know that we don't possess a righteousness that will inherit eternal life. We need an alien righteousness because we are sinners. We are sinners, even as we confess this morning, who sin in word, in thought, and in deed. Thank you, God, that you loved us, that you gave us Jesus. And once a person acknowledges their sin and in genuine repentance transfer their trust of their life to Christ alone to save them, they are saved. Not according to our words, but according to your word. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, save anyone in this room that doesn't know Jesus. Break their pride, their callousness, and their coldness. Break their Pharaoh-type heart. Lord, help them to see the world's offer of the gospel is false, but the genuine gospel will save them if they repent of their sin and trust in Christ. Bless your people now this morning, Lord as we have learned of you from Exodus chapter 8, and now as we dine together at the Lord's Supper. We ask for these things and we pray for them in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.